Today's uh, scripture passage comes from the middle section of Revelation 22, verses 6 through 13. This is God's word. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This ends the reading of God's word. Children ages three through kindergarten are dismissed to the little landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. What a, what a joy to worship the Lord together. Now over the word this is the second to the last message I'll be speaking out of this glorious book of Revelation. I think it's one of the most important messages that I could possibly preach at this time in my life and in this church's life and in the history of the world that we're living in. It's a summary of all the glorious things that we've seen in the book of Revelation. And Revelation is the capstone as many call it, of the whole of the Bible. In fact, one book by a, an author named Richard Balcom calls it the climax of prophecy. That's his title. Over and over and over, 1,100 times in fact, Revelation quotes the Old Testament and, and makes it the capstone, the climax, the zenith, the summary of everything that the Bible says. And now we're at the end of that book so that we're at the very end of the capstone of the whole Bible. And as a prophetic, spirit-guided pastor, John, the apostle, writing, he writes to us in the middle of chapter 22, after giving us this glorious vision of the wedding of the marriage supper of the Lamb and her husband, Christ, the bridegroom, he then tells us exactly what he would want to know and what he wants his seven churches and all the readers of Revelation to know. And all of us who, like the seven churches, live in these intervening centuries or days or moments between Christ's two comings. Here is a summary paragraph, and it feels disjointed. It feels like it's lots of different themes all combined together, almost like a big ball of string or a big ball of yarn or a, or a big ball of rubber bands that have all been wrapped around each other. Yet there's a unifying theme, not only to this paragraph, but to the whole book of Revelation, which is really the unifying theme of the whole Bible, and it's captured in the angel's instruction to John, worship God, worship God. I'm going to ask the Lord for help right now because there is need in my heart to make this message, worship God, plain to you, but there's also need, I think, for us to hear and receive even in this 
rubber band ball of verses, great truths that last and will define us as a church until Christ returns. Let's pray. I don't think we'll be the same after this message, Lord. I don't think I will be. The churches that are safe in the coming days will not be churches with the right programs for all the age groups or the right style of music or the right decorations or the right style of preacher. The churches that will be safe in the days ahead until you return are the churches who know you as you actually are and don't lie about you and cherish you with a white-hot worship that is hotter and stronger and better-fueled and burning with greater temperature and zeal and power than the lies of false worship all around us. Make us the kind of church that withstands the attacks that are leveled against us and the trigger is ready to be pulled. Make us the church that stands. Faithful. Unwavering. We know God as He is, not a caricature of Him, but as He is in His Word, and we worship Him. Wherever there is in us or in churches and believers in the Northland or around the world a flawed and defective view of the living God, would you reveal yourself to us and would you correct it? So that our worship to you is pleasing to you and that our declarations of you are truthful and accurate, drawing people exactly to you as you are. Take the summary that you've given to John and now to us through Holy Scripture and teach it to our souls, Lord, far more powerfully than simply listening to someone talk. Teach it by the Spirit to us. Teach a better sermon to these people than the one I've written. I would be invisible and inaudible. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. About a generation ago, feels weird to say that, but it was about a generation ago, a few churches from Minnesota, along with myself and my wife, we took a week-long short-term missions trip to, to Mexico, Monterey, Mexico. Our aim was to serve the children of an orphanage and to share the gospel in Spanish with people throughout the community, and we walked from door to door, and then we would gather in city centers, or we would put on in parks a, a public singing and declaration of the gospel in the form of skits and in the form of uh, our, our limited and somewhat uh, entertaining attempts at Spanish. By the end of the week, we were tired. It was hot and dusty all day long. We never got enough, quite enough food to eat. And uh, at night, it was a little cooler, but then the chiggers set in, and you had to scratch them in the morning. You could never see them or feel them, but they were under your skin by morning. It was hot and it was dusty. It was a little scary. It was a little shocking. And there were spiritual battles, surely, because Mexico is one of the most spiritually embattled places on earth. 
And we were battling all of those things. So by the very last day, we got to go on a bus ride to a a small valley not far away from the camp that we were working at and outside away from the city. And for the first time in Mexico that we could remember, we saw actual greenery. There was green things because there was a river. That river was this wonderful, clean water river. At least we were pretty sure it was clean Uh, with big old branches hanging over it and rope swings hanging from those branches. It was our reward for the week to splash in this cool water on a Saturday after a whole full long week of ministry. What I would say happened when all of us were splashing around in this greenery-lined river was something akin to worship. It was a delight. It was a joy. Thank you, God, for this water. Thank you for the rope swing. Thank you for the cool temperature and the cleansing of our bodies. The the snow-capped Sierra Madre Mountains far away would allow this snow to melt and this water to come down finally in one of these little rivers nearby, and we were able to enjoy it with a joy I don't think I'll forget. The psalmist in Psalm 46 says, There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. This is a picture that the psalmist is writing of Ezekiel's prophecy that there will be a river that comes from God. The very river will be in the midst of the city of God and God will dwell in the midst of that river. So come, dive into the river, bathe in it and find your heart delighting in God and in the river of the water of life that he supplies. That's what worship is like. That's what Christians do morning, noon, and night. That's what they do at work and online. That's what they do in conversations. And as as they're waking and going to sleep, that's what they do in family conversations. That's what they do when they're considering entertainment choices. That's what they're doing when they consider career and church choices and school choices. They're saying, how can I flow right in the middle of the river? And so 200 years ago, during the Second Great Awakening, lots and lots of songs and hymns that came out of the Second Great Awakening talked about, come to the river. Do you remember all those? Come to the river. What they were talking about was this Revelation 22 picture we saw last Lord's Day, where out from the throne of God comes the river of the water of life, and it's a reference to Ezekiel saying, and the people would wade in it and splash in it as if it was their delight. It's no mistake that the Hebrew word for delight is Eden. Eden was meant to be the delight of Adam and Eve, but sin entered and divided them from God and they lost their delight. And then after that, there's been this constant extension of God's delight in rivers of gospel grace to the people of Israel and ultimately to the nations and to you and me through the gospel. And we are invited to be washed. We're invited to come join in. Baptism is not just a once and out thing. Oh no, now that I'm in Christ, let's splash around and have a blast. Let me remain always in the river of the water of life. I want to always be in the power of the living God. I don't want to run along the dusty road of the Christian life in my own strength. Oh, what a horrible sounding effort. I might, I might get discouraged because this running in dust is so hard on my lungs and difficult and my feet don't seem to get a grip and I find myself alone and impoverished and tired and weary. Or I might do well and think proud of myself and be arrogant and self-deluded. No, I want to rest and float and wash myself in the river of God's delights.
Some may say that the overarching theme of the book of Revelation is to conquer. You've seen that theme, that command, conquer. Nikao is the Greek from, what we, from which we get the word Nike, meaning to, to conquer, to be victor. That word does show up many, many times. It is, in fact, a mighty theme, but I would say it is the penultimate, the second theme to the highest theme. What do I say is the highest theme? Well, if you looked at the word most often repeated in the book of Revelation, it's the word throne. By far, the word throne. Second to that is the word worship. And you can see then that when conquer is commanded to the people of God, it's implied that they have something to conquer and overcome, some force to oppose, some enemy to deny or defeat, some persecution to resist, some attack to repulse. So conquer, yes, but conquer for what? Conquer for the eternity of worship that's ours in Christ. Conquer for the eternity of worship that's ours in Christ. That's what I would say is the best way to describe the entire theme of the book of Revelation. Conquer for worship now and forever. That's my best effort at the theme of the whole book of Revelation. Conquer for worship now and forever. We don't conquer just to have a statue made of us. We don't conquer just to knock the dust off our hands and say, there, that's taken care of. We conquer for the sake of being the bride of Christ gathered around the throne and our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen lamb who was slain, receiving from us eternal worship. And if he receives from us eternal worship, then he receives worship for us now. So look back with me to the passage that Howard just read, and you'll see how worship God, right in the center of this passage, is the core that unites all the rubber bands wrapped around it. I want to show you briefly six incentives to worship then and worship now that John gives. We'll go through them quickly. Look at the first one. We see John in verses 8 and 9, right in the middle of the passage. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. And we want to say, now, John, you already did that once. Don't do that again. He had to rebuke and correct you the first time. But we have also great patience and understanding for John, for he saw these glorious visions from the angel, and he bowed down and worshiped the angel again. But, verse 9, he said to me, you must not do that. It's even stronger than the previous one in verse 19. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. There it is. John is commanded to worship God. John is commanded to find not the worship of angels, his delight. Does that sound far away from you, the worship of angels? It's not. I'm not suggesting that we actually have angelic beings as, as some religions like to identify angelic or heavenly beings and that we bow before them and pray to them. That's the worship of angels and it's unholy. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the fact that the devil himself is a fallen angel and his entire point was to get us to worship him instead of God. Beware of the worship of angels. 
John is instructed here again, mercifully though he made a serious idolatrous mistake of worshiping the angel who was speaking to him, because it's not angels or any of creation that we are to worship, but God alone and God himself. Just as we sang, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, not part of it, with all your soul, not just a portion, with all your mind, not just some of it, and with all your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, says Jesus. There is no other commandment greater than these. Mark 12. John's charge and our charge is to be like him, even if you're in a cell of imprisonment, captured because you're a faithful teacher and believer in Christ in the first century on the island of Patmos. Even if you're in a difficult situation, And this is why I prayed earlier. What's going to distinguish faithful Christians and healthy churches in the difficult days to come is not the programming or the style of preaching or the style of music. It will be who, like John, worships face down in his cell the Lord God and him alone. Who are the churches that are singularly impassioned to preach Christ and him crucified and to not shrink back in any fashion or form no matter what the pressure to do so? The first incentive John gives comes from verse 6. It says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. These words are trustworthy and true. Even though Revelation seems mystical, fantastic, apocalyptic, and almost hard to believe, it is in fact literally true. Just as the whole Bible is. Just because it's in apocalyptic terms doesn't mean it isn't true. It is, in fact, literally true. It's a grace to John, isn't it? And maybe this is why it even happened. That he was tempted to step out of line and not worship God, but worship the angel who was a messenger of God. But the angel rightly said, don't worship me. What does that do for John? What does that tell John about the angel's message and everything the angel has revealed to John? It tells John that everything the angel has already committed to him is totally trustworthy and true. If the angel would have allowed John to worship him, John immediately would have said, Oh, wait a minute. I'm in the presence of a liar. But the angel said, You can't worship me. I'm not the one who is the revealer, nor am I the one revealed by the revelation. Christ is. Worship him as God. Beware of any person or ministry or artist or influencer or gatekeeper or permission giver or attention grabber who wants you to give money, attention, and praise to her or to him. You're in the presence of a liar. For us and for John, the angel said, do not worship me. I'm only a fellow servant with you, which means you can trust me. The words of God are faithful and true. The early church in the first century 
fix their mind upon the word of God. The church of Jesus Christ in times of difficulty and struggle has always fixed its mind upon the word of God. I was thrilled out of my mind yesterday as I gathered with the 16 who were going on the missions trip to Alaska, standing out in a circle, just about ready to pray, and they're going to get into their vehicles and head to the Twin Cities. And one by one, in perfect order, they went around the 16 and each spoke out, memorized a portion of Colossians chapter 3 until the whole chapter was recited. That was worship. That was glorious. I couldn't have been more humbled and grateful to be a part of this church than I was yesterday afternoon. John fixes our attention on the details of the Word of God, saturates his writing with everything that's in the Old Testament so that it's a full and fitting climax to the whole Bible. And he says, now worship God in the voice of the angel. Worship God, landing. Worship God, everyone in the hearing of my voice. Worship God both now and then. Your conquering is for the fact that you will be now and then a great worshiper of God because his words are true. Second, It says he's coming soon, three times. Verses 6 and 7, And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 10, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Verse 12, Behold, I'm coming soon. Take is the Greek word, from which we get taxi or syntax. It's the idea that point A and point B has a line between it, and you're on that line. You're not deviating. God says, through Christ, there's a line, and there's unfolding events between now and Christ's coming, but the line is lined up, and everything is in its place, and the next great event of world history and redemptive history is Christ's arrival. Behold, I'm coming soon. Not soon in the sense of how we log years and decades and centuries and millennia, but soon in God's perfect timing, everything is ready for his drawing near. That's what the word in verse 10 means. The time is near. It means the time is at hand. All the arrangements have been made. Nothing is left out. Here's a major theme in scripture rising in Revelation. He's coming soon. He's coming soon. He's coming soon. And right we were to sing it powerfully just a bit ago as a church family. Christ is coming soon, and it should let your heart pound and your mind become clear and focused, and it should steal your resolve to walk with Christ. You should say, Lord Jesus, I am ready for you to come. Come, Lord Jesus, is a prayer that causes your whole life to come into order. Think about that. If you can pray that in your heart right now while I'm sharing this with you, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, you'll find everything in your life beginning to come into alignment. Everything begins to come in order. You find yourself saying, that helps me know that I need to win dear ones to Christ, and I need to witness, and I need to get in order my own life, and I need to get relationships in order, and I need to settle things with God. Come, Lord Jesus, is a way of saying, Lord, my whole life between now and your coming is fixed on worshiping you both now and when you come. Revelation 16, verse 15, Jesus said, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. That's what this staying awake means. He's going to come at a moment when the world is blind. But Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, We know we're children of the day. We we recognize his, his coming and the signs of his coming. 
We want to not be destined for wrath. We've been protected through Christ as we find our unity and shield and safety in him. So come, Lord Jesus. Bring all your justice wreaking wrath and bring all your merciful healing grace. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm coming soon. As soon as you can add, come, Lord Jesus, into your life, and I implore you to add that prayer into your life. Come, Lord Jesus. Watch all of your life reorder itself around God. Third, he blesses the word keepers. Not altogether different than what he's already been saying, but it's also precious and specific. You know that there are seven blessings in the book of Revelation to show that these blessings are complete and well-ordered by God. Seven blessings. This is the sixth one. Next Sunday, the last sermon on Revelation, we'll look at the seventh one. Verse 7 and 9, And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And he said to me, verse 9, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Blessed are the word keepers. Blessed are the word keepers. Word keepers are those who stand faithful to hold on to the blessing. The word keep means to keep against pressure to release. Keep means protect against those pressures which would want to destroy or diminish or dilute or change the word of God. Keep it is an active word. It means you must hold fast. It's exactly what we saw in Revelation 3.10. Listen, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, Jesus speaking to the Philadelphian Christians, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon, and here's a synonym to keep. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. You can see what keeping is. Keeping doesn't mean, oh, let's take our Bibles and let's keep them in uh, undiscernible languages that no one is speaking, like Latin, or only have them in Greek and Hebrew so that nobody can understand them and only a few uh, intellectuals can read them. And, and let's put them away as far in, in secluded places as possible and let's just expect someone else to live those out or someone else to read and and disagree over what it all means, but we won't let any of that have anything to do with the regular part of our life or our decisions. Just the opposite is true. Keeping means the Bible is going to course through my whole life, and it's going to inform every one of my decisions, and it's going to saturate my mind. That's what keeping or observing or holding fast to the Word of God means. It, it's what will define us in the days when pressure comes against us. You know there's a law that even if it doesn't pass this time, will be brought up again in U.S. Congress that wipes away religious freedom and threatens to put ministers in jail if they won't perform so-called gay or lesbian weddings. You know that law is being foisted now upon the Congress and they're considering it, and it probably won't pass this time. But if someone comes walking through the door and asks me to stand in violation against the Scriptures and sin against my own conscience, they're going to have to open up the doors of the jail for me to do my ministry. And then you all can come and join me. Talk about a building program. Blessing 
promise to the word keepers. What does that blessing mean? Jesus defined it in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessing means you own all of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessing means you've got all the comfort from God constantly ministering to you where your soul is wounded and hurt and broken. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessing then means receiving as sons the entire world as our inheritance as his adopted ones. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Fully satisfied is what blessing means in our souls forever with the perfect righteousness of God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy means we are the recipients of full, measureless, boundless, infinite, powerful mercy from God forever and ever. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God means seeing the living God face to face without embarrassment or shame. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, being fully adopted into the family of God, both men and women, given the eternal status as sons. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It means we own the kingdom of heaven, and we own it in such a way that we know what Christ suffered to give it to us. For we have suffered with him. The incentives to worship that John gives are first that everything that he has written is true. Therefore, worship God now and then. The incentives that he gives is Christ is coming back soon. Get ready. Order your life around the prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, and worship him now with that prayer and when he comes. Blessed are the word keepers. Keep the word Keep the word. That's how you worship, and that's what creates worship in you, both now and then, and the promised blessing. Fourth, look at verse 11. Worship God, for your holiness comes by grace. It's a tricky verse. You might not see how I get that right away. Let me show you. Let's read it, verses 10 and 11. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. You can understand that command. Don't seal it up. Daniel was told to seal them up. Now the time is near. Open them. Proclaim them. Shout them from the rooftops. Create podcasts so that they go out on the internet. Do live streaming and publish sermons and write songs and send out missionaries and equip evangelists and bless men and women and children of all ages and of all stations in life to proclaim, send out, publish abroad the word of God. Don't seal it up. But then look at this next verse, full of puzzlement in my mind, but I think I know what it means. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. It's not fatalistic. Don't fall into the trap that some have in thinking this verse just means people are just going to be the way they are. You can't change a leopard's spots. I read that in a lot of places. It's not what it means. How do we know that? We know that because in just two verses before, John worshiped the angel and the angel corrected him. Of course, it doesn't mean John's always going to commit the sin of worshiping angels the rest of his life and the rest of the eternity. That's not true. So it's not fatalism. In fact, it's an allusion, if not an exact quote, to Daniel 12, verses 9 and 10. Let me read Daniel 12, verses 9 and 10, and you'll notice how almost identical it is, but there's just one little added difference that helps clarify this verse in Revelation 22. 
The same angel, I believe, says to Daniel as he later speaks to John, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So everything Daniel was told, similar to what John's been told, was shut up and sealed for hundreds of years until it was revealed to John and John wrote it down in Revelation. Then verse 10 of Daniel 12 says, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Now we can see more clearly from Daniel 12 what John means in Revelation 22. He means that the power of God is so strong that as the power of God is settling down upon a people, as it settles down upon Duluth, Minnesota and this Northland region, as it settles down upon your family, there's a polarizing that takes place. Do you feel that? There's a polarizing where there's there's a group of people We all start filthy. That's why Daniel is so helpful when he says, many shall purify themselves. It's it's not like there's an arrogant, righteous, holy group, and they've always been that way. And then there's a filthy, evil group, and they've always been that way. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, all of us used to be filthy and evil. (laughs) We're all from among the filthy, evil group. But some, by God's grace, have purified themselves, Daniel says. And they will go on continuing in that character ever being holy and righteous as God has made them. The more the the persecution and oppression and difficulties and stresses come, the more bright will be their shining star. So also with the filthy and the wicked. These are those who have heard the option, the benefit and the offer many times, thousands upon thousands of times. Turn and believe. Trust in Christ. Repent of your sin. Bow the knee before him. Jump into the river and be washed. But they stand on the shore, tears streaming down their face, sweat, dust, chiggers all over their skin, and anger in their souls. Don't tell me what to do. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the forgiven still be forgiven. Let the evil still do evil. Let the holy still be holy. There's a polarizing, and it's happening right now. We don't have to wait till the, till the son of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed. That's coming next. And the apostasy, many fall away from the church and follow after him. All that's happening right now. It's already beginning. You see it. This spiritual polarizing is exactly what Jesus was talking about to the Pharisees in his day when he quoted Isaiah chapter 6. He says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. There is a too late with God, and more than that, soberly, you and I must fully reckon reckon with the Bible's teaching that if you and I and any person you know stands in firm, resistant, brazen forehead rejection of God, there is a too late in this life as well. May the Lord never allow you or me to ever be in that state. And for those whose names may come to your mind who you wonder if are in that state, oh, how we must pray. And ask for the same gracious 
overwhelming, humbling, and new life that was given to us be given to them that they jump into the river of delights with us. Paul said to to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Do you see what grace does? Grace has appeared, and it trains us to renounce godliness, worldly passions, to live controlled, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. But not just the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Another incentive he gives is verse 12, worship God for he repays obedience. And this flows, of course, on the previous one so simply and so plainly. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon, recompense, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. The recompense that Christ repays is himself. The reward he gives is more of himself. For me to live is Christ, but for me to die is gain. Why? Because when I die, I get more Christ. More of himself filled up to all the fullness of God, greater and greater outpourings of himself. This is a grace that he supplies to us and says, this is why you should pray, come Lord Jesus and worship me now as well as worship me then. This is the grace and the incentive to conquer and overcome whatever hinders your worship of me. Listen to how Paul addresses Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. That's worship vocabulary. Paul is worshiping and seeing his very life as an as a offering of worship to the Lord. This is what I'm, what I'm saying John is calling us all to because it fits so perfectly with Paul here. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. He's an aged man when he's writing this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith by this great grace. Surely he, he doesn't mention grace in this passage, but elsewhere in his writings he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. Then verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. That's the reward, the recompense, the repayment Christ holds out, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. To those who are praying, Lord, I love your appearing. Come, Lord Jesus. Come set everything to right. Come reorder things all after the counsel of your will. Come gather your church and denounce and defeat your enemies. Come be the recipient of all our praise, worship, and glory face to face. Worship with this incentive that everything that I do and offer will be recognized and rewarded by this crown of righteousness that Paul holds out. It's what he later or elsewhere in Romans 8.30 calls be glorified, that crown of righteousness, the commendation for all that's been done. Finally, verse 13, an incentive to worship now and worship then. We don't just worship Christ for what he's done and what he will do. We worship Christ for who he is. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
In Revelation 1.8, that was said about God, the Father, I am, an I am statement right here in John. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That was said about God. And now at the end of Revelation, as if to sew up the entire book of Revelation, Christ says that about himself. I am the Alpha and the, and the Omega. That means I'm not in competition with God. I'm not alongside God. I'm not a second God. There's only one God, and I am He, says Christ. Jesus, who is the risen Lamb and Lord of all, is God. And so we do not worship angels. We do not worship anything in creation. We do not worship ourselves or ideas of ourselves. We do not worship a modified or diminished view of God. We worship this God in all his mysterious glory, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. No one comes before him. No one comes after him. He is accountable to no one but his own glory, for he alone is God. What will define faithful believers and faithful churches in the days of strife and tension and danger ahead? What will define us is not that we are the most clever at uh, getting people's phone numbers so that we can text them. Not that we have the most entertaining preacher or the best worship team or the most interesting children's programs or, or, or the most helpful of programmatic ministries. Oh, those are all wonderful things to be thankful for. That's not what will define us. What defines us is this innate, unstoppable desire to say, we will worship God, this God. So when war comes from a neighboring larger country and begins to pummel your cities, you don't shut everything down. You say, okay, you want to bomb our buildings? You want to send missiles? You want to send troops above ground? Come on, everybody. We're going down in the subway. The acoustics are great down there. We're going to worship God. In the city squares, on nature walks, in hospital rooms when hard news has just been received, in jail cells, on airplanes, in space modules, when the ground is steady and when the ground is shaking. Wherever you are, God is there, this God, and worthy to be worshipped both now and when he comes. We don't worship God by location or ritual. We worship God by dwelling in the Spirit and declaring it to him in truth. The Father seeks worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. So I say with the Spirit who authored Scripture, the Spirit and the Bride, that is, the Holy Spirit of God and the church in her witness say, Come, you who desire the water of life. And I add, Come splash in the river of the water of life now and forever. The price has already been paid by the one whom you worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would release all blessings, all gifts and fruits of your Spirit, all insights from your Word, all boldness in every heart, to commit to memory phrases of your Word that enable us to worship you with those phrases no matter where we are. 
to commit to memory parts of the Psalms or parts of Revelation or other parts of the Bible that press us toward you, even the phrase, come Lord Jesus, as a prayer and as an extension of our worship that we believe you alone can, break, can heal what is broken, can forgive what is guilty, can unify what is separated, can set to right what is all very wrong. Come, Lord Jesus. There is a river that makes glad the city of God. Lord, would you make us into individual, day-to-day, moment-by-moment worshipers of your glory, the glory that's in Christ Jesus. May we say, as we said in Revelation 4, you are worthy, Lord Jesus. You are worthy of all my worship. And then gather eagerly, without resistance, or distraction on the Lord's day to lift our hearts toward you with maximal joy and full-throated engagement and wholehearted participation. And I pray that you would conquer everything that hinders that in us. Not just us, but this whole region and this whole nation and the whole globe that you have lying before you. And you don't even just look at the globe lying before you, you look at all time. You see those alive before and those who will yet be alive. Gather worshipers from every tribe, tongue, and nation for yourself out of all whom you have created, I pray, O God. Come back, Lord Jesus, come in glorious fashion and establish yourself and your kingdom and your reign in personal face-to-face measure and fashion. And I thank you so much for the promise that you'll preserve us faithful until that day that glorious day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.